This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. What makes a teenager want to commit mass murder, and what might stop them? Those questions have come up ever since Columbine, and most recently with the STEM shooting in Highlands Ranch. Well, Aaron Stark of Denver says as a teenager, he became obsessed with the idea of killing others and himself. Stark's TED Talk, I Was Almost a School Shooter, has gotten nearly 8 million views. I was told I was worthless by just about everybody in my life. And when you're told you're worthless enough, you will believe it. Then you're going to do everything you can to make everybody else agree with it, too. And Aaron Stark, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Today, you're a married father of four, a very different path from the one that you were headed down. Uh, This plot occurred to you in the mid-90s when you were at North High School in Denver, uh, actually one of dozens of schools you'd attended as a kid. Help us understand what your childhood was like, first off. It was, I uh, I had a very chaotic childhood. Um, we moved around a lot. My parents were very uh, criminal, uh, drug, lots of drugs, lots of violence. And we were running from place to place a lot, either from getting evicted or running from authorities or whatever. And I never really had much stability. Um, but I... I, I I found my own personal comfort by kind of adopting darkness as my persona that I found that was the best way to keep myself protected from anybody that wanted to hurt me. I would get really aggressive and that would push everybody that wanted to hurt me away, would bring a couple people close to me that might understand me. And so I, I, I got more and more aggressive. I would do things like uh, listen to a lot of heavy metal. I, heavy metal is not bad. I don't demonize it, but mm. it was what I was listening to a lot. A lot of Nine Inch Nails, a lot of Marilyn Manson, um, trying to be as offensive as possible. Um, I was, lots of abuse. Lots of abuse lots of at abuse. the hands of your parents. Yes, lots of abuse. Well, my parents, um, my, fa- my my extended family, uh, yeah, Um my 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 real dad, my birth dad, he was an ex-Vietnam vet, and growing up with him was like growing up with a Stephen King movie. Uh, lots of like blatant horror, lots of extreme violence and and blood and and rapes, and it was very bad. Every kind of abuse, physical, sexual, mental. Um, and then when we left him, when I was about five, we got with my stepdad, and it went from a Stephen King movie to more like Scarface, where lots of crack cocaine criminals and stealing and fighting and and i am um, the uh, during that whole time i felt i was told always that i was worthless that i was nothing that i was just the fat kid that that, that everything that i that i liked just got squashed and I, nothing i yeah it was bad it sounds like you had in a way it sounds like you had nothing to lose i Eventually, yeah, I got to the point where I didn't have anything to lose and when you have nothing to lose you can do anything and that's a really scary thought did you want notoriety? No, no. Wasn't, that wasn't part of this? Wasn't it all about notoriety? Well, I I suppose in a way, because what I wanted to do was just hear me. I felt like I was alone and I wasn't being heard at all. And that I had been screaming out into the void. I had tried to get myself help a couple times. I was, I was feeling very suicidal and I was homeless and I was like, I got into cutting. I was cutting my arms really bad. I was um, doing lots of LSD. I was... The homeless sleeping on the pavement for months at a time. And I got to the point where I, I felt like I had nothing to lose. And it went, it was a really scary time. What exactly were you planning? Well, I was going to North High School at the time. And in the months beforehand, with my friends in that kind of dark area, instead of hanging out, talking about 
the people we, uh, the movies we saw or the sports we watched or whatever, we would actually kind of fantasize about how we would kill people. It was kind of the fiction of the group where we would talk, well, if I was going to do it, I'd, I'd do it this way or I'd, I'd attack a school. Or, and so it was, I know it seems really odd to talk about it like that, but when you're, when you're living and when darkness is your persona, you're trying to make it to where everybody just doesn't like you on purpose. It's can be one of the things you, that happens. And during that, that fantasizing, the plans had kind of come up. But then once I hit the really worst of my depression, when I tried to get help and I was, had the door slammed in me and I was told that no one could help me. And I was felt at my absolute bottom. I had planned on attacking North high by going in through a hallway and attacking the food court. Had you gotten a weapon or had you planned to get a weapon? I had planned on getting a weapon. There were gangbangers that went to the school. Um, they had known me from, I, I, I was always at school. I was never in school. I basically lived in the park across the street from the school and they had seen that I wasn't a narc or anything. Obviously I was just the homeless grungy kid. Um, and I had known that they had guns. They had brought them during and just showed them off a couple of times, like handguns. And so I went up to him like, Hey, can you get me a gun? preferably one that shoots a lot of bullets. And he's like, yeah, sure do whatever. Give me an ounce of weed and I'll, I'll get that for you. And this was in the early nineties when that's like 500, 600 bucks. So and to me, that wasn't much of a problem. I just went to my family's house and stole one from a druggie sleeping on the floor and went and gave it to him. And stole the marijuana. Stole the marijuana. In exchange the for the gun. Did you get a hold of the gun? I did not. You did not. No, I had planned to get it, but I ended up, I, I gave him the, the weed and he said, wait three days and I'll have the gun for you. And I just never went and got it. You mentioned that you were cutting at this time. Mm-hmm. How much of this behavior uh, was about hurting yourself versus hurting others? I mean, it all sounds like it. you you wanted to do both. I'd say all of it was about hurting myself, including hurting others, because oh. it wasn't about the, the attacking the school wasn't about attacking the people. It was about causing as much destruction as possible in the shortest amount of time. And it was more to attack my parents in a way by making them have to deal with, with creating a monster. Hmm. Uh, so that's the backdrop. I want to spend the rest of the conversation talking about what we might learn from this. What was key to stopping your plot? Being treated like a human. I... I I didn't feel human. I felt very, really inhuman. I felt like either people who wanted to help me looked at me like I was a project, like they wanted to fix me, or they looked at me like I was a broken monster who needed to be just destroyed. Who heard you? Um, my best friend. Uh, he was my only friend at the time. He's still my best friend to this day. His name's Mike. And he, when I was at my lowest, he just treated me like a person. And I went over to his house in between when I had planned to get the gun. I, after I had given the guy the marijuana, I went over to Mike's house. And I was basically saying goodbye. And instead of letting me, he just sat me down. He's like, dude, it's going to be okay. These things you're going through are normal. Like you, you, the, the way you're feeling, it's reasonable to feel that way. You're going through a lot of crap in your life. It's okay. You're not broken. You're not a monster. And literally being treated like a person when I didn't feel like I was human just changed my entire world. It showed, it, I spent the next couple of days at Mike's house instead of going and getting the gun because I, he, he, we had meals. I, he just fed me. We watched a movie, took a shower. I just was able to be me and not be broken. 
Is there a risk of oversimplifying what can prevent a school shooting as we talk about this? In, in other words, a, a mere act of kindness might have prevented a school shooting. I, I think that the problem there isn't the oversimplification. I think it's looking for a full solution. I think that kindness needs to be absolutely necessary for us to solve this. And no, it's not going to fix all the problem. It's not going to stop all the school shootings. It might stop one and one's enough. And it, it, we, if we, we have to start somewhere. We're constantly looking as a group, as a people for something that's going to fix all the problems. And if this regulation isn't going to solve all the school shootings, then why should we do it? We have to start somewhere. And kindness is absolutely free. So what are you recommending? Like you, you just tell kids to be more kind? You know, bullying has, has always existed and as, as awful as it is, so has abuse. Mm-hmm. But school shootings haven't always been with us. I think listening to the outcast, listening, listen to the ones who feel like they aren't, they're invisible and aren't being heard because that's where the pain grows. The, the, when I was going from school to school and we were moving from place to place, running from the authorities, I, I would hit a school and I would get bullied. Okay. Because I was the fat smelly kid and I always had dirty clothes and I was always filthy. So when I would go to a school, I'd have a group of bullies and there might be one kid that was bullying me, but he'd have five or six friends that might bully him too. And then on the other side, I might have five or six kids that would be against him that would be protecting me. Like, no, you're okay. But nowadays we have the internet where instead of having five or six kids that might also bully, you have an entire subculture that's not only cheering you on how to bully, but it's giving you tips on how to be a better bully and how to do it even more. And what we need to do is the kids who find that group acceptable and who will look to that for approval, I think they're doing that because they just want positive reinforcement to show say that they're okay. If we give that somewhere else, maybe that'll stop. Uh, just before we go, I'm curious how honest and when uh, you felt you could be honest with your own family about what you had grappled with as a teenager. It was right after the Parkland massacre. Um, literally the day after, uh, we were having a tearful discussion about how this could happen and just wrote a simple Facebook post explaining my, my thing because my wife had only known 60%. My daughter knew about 20. There's no reason to not be fully honest. And so I just shared it all. You can hear the full TED Talk online. Uh, It is certainly arresting. Thanks for being with us, Aaron. Thank you. Um, If I could just say one more thing. The only thing I really want to tell everybody is just give love to people who you feel deserve it the least because they need it the most. That line stuck out to me, especially from your talk. Aaron Stark of Denver has parlayed his desire as a teenager to perpetrate a mass shooting into a campaign to prevent violence. His talk at TEDx Boulder has been viewed nearly 8 million times. This year's TEDx Boulder takes place June 1st. There was a warning from the commencement speaker this year at CSU's College of Engineering. As you graduating seniors know, public speaking and engineering don't necessarily go hand in hand, especially when there's no PowerPoint charts. So um, two goals today, and um, that is to do my best to remember what I wanted to say and not to pass out. So we'll give it a go. (laughs) 
This is Brittany Stinson, Mission Manager for United Launch Alliance. She's been at the helm of numerous launches, including one to Pluto. Stinson's a CSU engineering graduate herself and now lives in Parker. So one of the most important things I have learned is it's not how you do the big, fun things in life. What really matters is how you do the little things or the things you don't want to do or the things that are really, really hard to do. Anyone can be great at the fun things in life. That is easy. But the true test of your character and what will set you apart is how you do all that other stuff and that stuff that you just don't want to do. Now, for Simpson, launch day is the big fun stuff. But after a satellite or spacecraft blasts off, well, that's when it gets grueling. The little stuff comes. She hearkened back to her first launch. You know, after that mission, I flew my mission. I thought my job was done. And then I found out, no, I was wrong. I had to go around to every building, to every room that supported launch, and hand out launch coins and launch stickers. My first response is, you have got to be kidding me. Like, I'm tired. I just want to go to the hotel and get some sleep and go home. Isn't there someone else that can do this? But I went ahead and did it. It took me hours. And finally, I got to go back home and go to sleep. That was my most important thing. But I learned something incredibly valuable that day. It meant something to those people to have the mission manager come around and say, thank you for your role in mission success. Thank you for helping launch this incredibly complex machine right on target into space. And that's when I learned, and that's when I made the promise to myself that I was going to do that small thing of handing out launch stickers and launch coins, as well as, if not better, then I got to do the fun thing of saying go on launch day. Brittany Stinson, a native of Fort Collins, told the CSU engineering graduates that she didn't start out wanting to be an engineer. When I was growing up, engineering wasn't even in the realm of my, my possibility. I was going to be an author. Not a good idea. Nurse, I don't do well with blood, right? So none of that was going to work. And one of the things I get asked most often now is, how did you fall in love with space? How did you decide to do this job? And I can all pinpoint it to one day in July of 1995. My parents, sister, and I went to see the movie Apollo 13. And this is when you guys have to contribute. How many of you have seen the movie Apollo 13? Okay, if you haven't and you're an engineer, you really need to. I'm just going to say that. But after the movie, I was at home with my sister, and she was, you know, asked me what I thought, and I was telling her how great the movie was, how awe-inspiring it was, how smart these people were. And my sister, in true sisterly fashion, who is now a lawyer, by the way, um, looked at me and said, well, why don't you just shut up and go do it? And that was the day. I was hooked. I fell in love with the space program, and I had the passion to go make it happen. And to this day, I'll be honest with you, there are days I just don't want to go to work. I mean, who does? Sometimes we just want to go on vacation, right? But all I ask for you is be passionate about what you do. It will show. You can obviously tell who's there because they're passionate about something and who's just there to take home that paycheck. So whatever you decide to do, be passionate about it, love it, and then just go do it. Brittany Stinson speaking earlier this month to graduates of the Walter Scott Jr. College of Engineering at Colorado State University. Stinson lives in Parker and is mission manager at United Launch Alliance.
Now, what happens after you die? This isn't a religious story. It's about your digital afterlife, social media accounts, email, online banking. Jed Brubaker thinks a lot about this. He's an assistant professor of information science at CU Boulder and has consulted for years with Facebook, including on this issue of a digital afterlife. Jed, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Your interest in this subject started in 2009 when Facebook launched a seemingly innocuous campaign to reconnect people with old friends. What happened? Sure. It was unfortunately right around Halloween. Um, And all of a sudden, people started getting these notifications telling them, as you said, to reconnect with old friends. Uh, Facebook had this idea that they could help people who hadn't fully integrated or connected with people on the platform find people, get back on the platform, you know, create that network that really is what Facebook is about. However, it turns out there's a group of people that weren't using the platform for a very good reason. And when Facebook was paying attention to who wasn't inactive and encouraging people to reach out to them, well, some dead people got pulled up in that net as well. In other words, you haven't been in touch with so-and-so. Uh, that's because they're dead. Exactly. And so this would have been incredibly offensive to the right. people receiving those notifications. Uh, is the answer to delete an account? What is the answer? You know, historically, that's how technology companies have approached this. But it's pretty clear in our research at CU Boulder that that's not what you should do. There might have been a time where you wrap up an account and think about it like a bank account. But our social media accounts, they're not just a place to store money. They're a place where we store our memories. And so just deleting them actually can be just as painful for people. We talk about it as a kind of second death. Indeed, I have seen Facebook pages that have become, for years after someone's death, ongoing memorials. There's a page I comment on when I think of this particular person. Sure. And this is an experience that many, many people have. And one of the reasons why Facebook's actually been pretty proactive, especially compared to other technology companies, to support these types of experiences. Help us understand how you maintain privacy and security after death. And that that sounds like a ludicrous question, but it's the natural question of passwords, who has access to them, uh, who has the rights to manage a page after someone dies. It gets into all kinds of ethical concerns. Sure. There's ethical concerns. There's policy concerns. There's also straight up computer security concerns. Uh, And this was a lot of what Facebook was wrestling with in 2015 and the few years prior as they were preparing and then eventually launched a feature called Legacy Contact. Indeed, Legacy Contact's a feature that lets you select someone that you trust who can care for your profile and those memories and your network of friends after you've passed away. So one of the things that we have to keep in mind is that these accounts, as I said, they're not similar to bank accounts. They're, they're kind of representations of who we are. And so it actually can be really confusing and detrimental if we, for, for example, just give someone a username and password. There's many scenarios in which people end up doing something, clicking on something, and all of a sudden, grandma is alive and kicking on Facebook, even though we all know she's not. And that can be distressing as well. So there's a delicate balance. Yeah. And you, you just have to convey the right message sure. and have the right tools to do so. Uh, You talked about Facebook in this regard being ahead of the curve. Help us understand what other social media companies are dealing with. But beyond that, to bank accounts and to all of the – I mean, I I look at my sheet of passwords now. 
Then I think of how many digital accounts I have. Sure. And how much that is to manage after death. We all have a ton of them. For the living. It's it's really important to have them all put together, particularly in a place where someone who you know, trust, maybe a significant other, a close relative, could take care of things as they need to be taken care of. Uh, But there are concerns, particularly on uh, social media, around um, identity theft is one we hear about in the lab. And people wanting to figure out how to secure these spaces, even as they preserve the memory of the people that they love. And that's the approach that they've taken at Facebook. Yeah, uh, that is, this could be harnessed by bad actors. Is there evidence that that's happened? I don't have any direct evidence of that. Um, what what we hear in the lab and what, what we've seen in our data is that people have a concern about that. Mm. Um, there are other... There are other kinds of companies that take a more security focus that probably have numbers on that. But that's mostly something we just hear about as a concern. So are you recommending that people essentially have an advanced directive for their social media? Is that is that kind of what I'm hearing? I think it's really important to have an advanced directive for most parts of your life, uh-huh. including social media. But I think a really important thing that everyone needs to pay attention to here is that These are not trivial accounts. We hop on them and we post things here and there, and they can seem trivial, but they're not. Even what's trivial to you ends up being really important and special, even sacred to those who uh, leave behind. And those memories are important for them as they connect to and remember, just as you were saying with your friend. How are, I don't know, Google and Twitter wrestling with this? So historically, most technology companies, when they found out that someone had died, they simply just deleted the account. And this is largely for policy and legal reasons. You click after not reading those terms of agreement. Uh Um, You click, (laughs) I agree, but the person who's made the agreement is no longer around to be in that agreement. Uh, But that's not really the case anymore. And what we see is kind of a almost incoherent space. Um, Google has ways of setting up what's called the inactive um, account manager that just pays attention. And if you haven't logged in for a while, it suspects that maybe we should give access to someone else. And then you can imagine that would be helpful in the case of death or other scenarios as well. But most other companies don't have a lot of policy going on here. How, How does that begin to change? Well, I think one, it begins to change through awareness, through conversations like this. Um, It's also something that's time will come and is coming now. It's kind of hard to remember that Facebook only started in 2004. And it's really interesting now that these technology companies have gotten large enough that they're not just paying attention to whether they can survive for the next week or the next month or year. We actually now can start thinking about social media accounts in terms of lifespans and Mm. generations, which is a totally different way of thinking about it. Yeah. I know that Facebook made some policy decisions after the Virginia Tech shooting. Right. So this was the big shift that happened when Facebook decided to stop deleting accounts when they found out that someone had died. In 2007, following the Virginia Tech shooting, people at Virginia Tech reached out to Facebook and said, hey, we're using these spaces to grieve. We know you shut them down. Please don't take these away. And at that point, Facebook changes their policy to do effectively nothing. And this this is a really important moment because all of a sudden, rather than clearing away the things that might make a space a memorial, they just let them be there. So come 2015, uh, it's really important to start designing and honoring these spaces uh, for the memorials that they have become. It sounds to me like a lot of the responsibility is placed in your mind on digital consumers as much as the companies themselves. Do you think that's true? Hmm. 
you know, I think it's important for us to decide what we want. And this actually is a, a kind of a tricky uh, question. And right. Issue this in is this actually space. a question you've been asking people. Right. What, what do you want of your data after you die? What are you hearing? Well, so this is what we, so in the lab, we call this the postmortem paradox. Okay. Um, and rather than, uh, well, pretty straightforward, what we found is that when we talk to people about other accounts, the accounts they visit, they care about them a ton. They're so important. They're precious. And they want to honor their deceased loved one's memories. But then when we ask them, typically right on the heels of the same interview, what do they want done with their own account? Your own accounts. They say, I don't care. I'm not going to be around. I totally get that. Yeah, I do too. But this is a really interesting challenge for technology. It means that the people who care the most do not have the functionality to make choices. And the people who care the least, the account holders, they're the ones who do. They even retain power in death in a way. But they aren't necessarily motivated to do anything. Mm. So, you know, there's a broader growing awareness around end-of-life issues, both here and abroad. And I think it's important for people to stop and think about, well, how do they want to be remembered? And even if they don't care, it's important for them to tell their loved ones that they don't care and that they trust them to do what they think's best. Right. I can imagine someone making the choice to say, after I die, I just want all the accounts deleted. I want no trace of myself digitally. You, and that's you must certainly hear that. an option. Um, I mean, that's at least that's an option that's built, been built into several of the features that are out there, Facebook and Google similarly. Okay, we have about a minute. What are some practical steps then that you'd suggest people take? Practical step number one Like is, it would be a weird Facebook post for me this morning to say, guys, here's what I want when I die. You know. Well, why would that be weird? Uh, it might be a, seen as a cry for help, but I suppose if it's pr- phrased properly. So I think the real issue here is that maybe we need to stop considering these things as weird. Mm. But that also coincides with a broader step back. We need to take a step back. Only 48% of U.S. Americans who should have a will actually have a will. So everyone needs to get on that and take care of the things that we already know how to take care of. Mm-hmm. And built into that, we should start thinking about these new kinds of assets and resources. I see. You... I uh, believe this is connected to a larger conversation we aren't necessarily having about death. Yeah. Yeah. This has been fascinating. Jed, thanks so much. You're welcome. Jed Brubaker, Assistant Professor of Information Science at CU Boulder. He studies the digital afterlife. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News. <laughs> Musical genres may be helpful if you're browsing for something new to listen to, whether it's classical, maybe country, you want some rock. But musicians often despise the boxes they're put into. Duke Ellington, for example, wasn't fond of the term jazz. He once said there are only two kinds of music, good music and the other kind. We can safely put our next guest, the genre-defying bailiff fleck, into that first kind, good music. Here's a sampler. Thank you. 
The 15-time Grammy-winning banjoist plays Red Rocks Thursday with a friends and family concert. It'll feature performances with his band, The Flectones, also the Colorado Symphony, saxophonist Jeff Coffin, Dobro star Jerry Douglas, and Fleck's wife, the singer and fellow banjo player Abigail Washburn. And Bela, welcome back to our show. Nice to be here. How are you doing? Doing well. And to build on what Duke Ellington once said, he thought the best kind of music was beyond category. Does that phrase have any resonance with you? I can get behind that. I would say that I believe a lot of the music I love the best happens on the edge of categories, and or, or they, they become new categories after a while. Uh, and it's a moving target, so things are constantly changing. But if you even go back to, you know, classical music periods, somebody comes along and does something and everybody says, well, this is kind of way out. I don't get this. And then that, you know, years later, you look back and it just becomes a new category or a new style. Yeah. Um, but it's the same with everything. I, I don't worry about it. I just, um, I am attracted to the categories in that I love traditional bluegrass, the straight up stuff right down the middle. I love lots of different eras of jazz that you would could call classic um, I also love the stuff on the edges. I think of, of this show at Red Rocks, I think of how many people you'll be showcasing on stage with you. And I wonder if you think it is an obligation on a successful musician to lift others up, if you see that to some extent as your responsibility. Um, well, I think uh, part of it is you get bored with yourself. Like I've heard myself <laughs> play so much. And one real great trick to keeping yourself interesting is to play with great people that are unique and different from each other. And then it shows you in a new light all the time. So it can be self-serving while it's also altruistic. And I always felt like with the Flectones, okay, we've got five records out. Now what are we going to do? Everybody's heard the Flectones. Well, let's get some great people. Let's start to curate. And I thought if somebody did that for me, I would like them that much more. <laughs> so again, self-serving while, while also helping out uh, other people, but also shining the, the light on things we love. You'll be shining a light once again on the Colorado Symphony. You've had a, a long history of collaboration. Uh, I think of your second classical album, Juno Concerto. Back in 2017, in fact, you told us that some purists in the classical world were resistant to the banjo. Do you still get that kind of pushback? Yeah, um, it's not a slam dunk. Not every orchestra wants to do it. And they have that right, just like a traditional bluegrass fan has a right not to like new grass or someone who loves early jazz has a right not to like fusion. That's okay. That's their right. I've had a lot of good things happen with orchestras and I've had, you know, things go great and then they're not interested in doing it again. Well, we already did the banjo thing and, you know, that's an, enough. So <laughs> the, um, the, the banjo thing, it's like the banjo thing one, once right. in a career or something. Yeah. But the th nice thing is there's been a few pockets where people really went for it and really felt like it worked for them, too, you know, and they wanted to keep doing it. And luck that's good because I have three concertos and uh, Colorado is one of the one that has commissioned and performed all of the three banjo concertos that I've come up with so far, as well as the one that uh, Edgar Meyer and I wrote with Sakir Hussein. So, um, you know, I consider them to be a real friends as much as, as a 90 people can be your friends, but, but the, the folks that do that symphony get me and can swing with who I am and find a way to interface with me, and I feel very fortunate because it doesn't happen everywhere.
So this is from Juno Concerto, written for your son, Juno. How old is he? Just turned six. Just turned six. Does he like the piece? Uh, he he was okay with it. I mean, he was there when we were recording it with the symphony there at Betcher Hall. Um, and yeah, I mean, I don't think it matters a whole lot to him. What really matters to him is golf. That's his thing. Oh. He loves golf and he's really, really good at it. Music is, uh, he's very musically adept and has really good opinions and he's, he sings beautifully, uh, but it hasn't seemed to jump out as the thing for him. And we also have a one-year-old, so I'm, I'm hoping one of these guys is going to be into it. But we'll see what happens. You know, he is only six. He may suddenly go, all right. But the other day, he he, he walked by the, the couch. My banjo was sitting there, and he strummed it walking by. And I was in the kitchen, and I said, hey, Juno, anytime you're ready, I'll start showing you some banjo stuff. And he <laughs> said, no, Papa, you play the banjo. I play golf. It strikes me, though, that the, the similarity here is that you both have to choose the right instruments. In other words, yeah, well, golf is very much about selecting the right tool, so is music. Well, that's true. That's also about activating people. Like everybody, I believe every single person in the world has things that activate them. And the ones that act upon that, you know, hopefully they're healthy things that activate them. But uh, the ones that act on that activation and go out and allow it to flower have more of a tendency to find the things that they love in their life and that they can grow and get really good at and be proud of. And, you know, most musicians, like even me, like I, I liked music, but it wasn't until I got a banjo that I was activated. I, I was playing a little guitar and I was sort of musically you know, I had some musical wherewithal, but I wasn't really on fire. But when I got that banjo, it was a whole different thing. It was, uh, I couldn't put it down. So people have to find that thing. And with, with Juno, it's very clear when golf happened to him, um, nobody pushed it on him. It was just one of these things. It He got activated. And, you know, I know a lot of people who have never gotten activated, never found that thing. And sometimes I just feel it's a missed opportunity that the cues were there and they just didn't, nobody pushed him and said, hey, you really liked that. Let's do that again. Bela Fleck, what's the story behind your first banjo? Oh, well, my first banjo was given to me by my grandfather because he saw that I was musical. I was playing some guitar. I had a gut string guitar and I was learning Beatles songs and folk songs and I, I liked it. I saw myself as a musician, but I didn't really practice or get serious. I played the chords out of the Beatle book. So anyway, he saw a banjo at a garage sale just when I was turning 15. Uh, he gave it to me right before the, the weekend before I started high school. It was just like, wow, I've been waiting for one of these. I, I never had the nerve to even bring up the fact that I wanted one, but that's what I always wanted because I never thought anybody could actually play the banjo. It was had to be impossible, so I never asked for one. But then when it landed in my lap, it was what I had wanted. No, he didn't even know that. It was just this kind of like a guitar. Maybe you want this. A garage sale banjo. I love it. That would also mm -hmm. be a great band name, garage sale banjo. Yeah. Okay. On the subject of your family, Bela Fleck, your wife, the singer and fellow banjoist, Abigail Washburn, will be a part of this Red Rocks show. Why don't we hear the two of you together? So take me to Harlem, anywhere you go. Take me to Harlem, didn't you? Abigail started touring together just over five years ago, um, really, as I understand it, to help keep your family together. This was around when Juno was born. What's the best thing and the worst thing 
about a couple colla- <laughs> collaborating. Well, first, I got just got to mention because you can't see what she just did in that song is that she's dancing and singing simultaneously, and that was the idea of that song, like a high jump, like a. I think she said, "I think I can sing and dance at the same time," you know, clog dance. And I said, "Okay, let's do it." And so we wrote this thing together where she could sing and breathe and dance, and we wrote dance, you know, into the arrangement. And so it's pretty impressive. And I think I believe she's going to do that at Red Rocks that piece, but it's it's a high jump for her. I just get to sit there and play the banjo. What's the easiest? What's the hardest? Um, you know, what's hard is sometimes when business is coming at us, like you've got to make a decision about whether you're going to go to Scotland or not. And we're like mulling it. And I can't get her attention because she's so busy with the kids. And it's like all I can do to get answers. So we become this bottleneck to our, you know, the people that work, our, our agents and managers who can't get any answers from us. And I get frustrated by that sometimes. And I probably wouldn't. I don't want to say it this way, but I wouldn't put up with it with a lot of people. But with her, I, I don't even question it. In other words, if I was playing with a musician and I couldn't get any answers, I'd go, well, maybe we shouldn't be playing together. <laughs> <laughs> Not the case with but your wife. with Abigail, it's like, no, 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 no. You know, and I hold them off. That's my job to hold off the forces that are looking for answers till we're ready to give them. So that's a little bit tough. Maybe the uh, best thing having... is that you have the, for- mm-hmm. you have the forgiveness and understanding for her. It sounds like this is actually a double-sided coin here. Well, I have to say, everybody should not work with their partner. It's not for everybody. It's very much based on their, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Patience. What they're like. Okay. (laughs) What they're like. There's a better word, but I'll say what they're like. Abby happens to be a very beautiful person. It's very warm and has the best of intentions and is not an egomaniac. So that's one of us (laughs) that that (laughs) can be dealt with. (laughs) <laughs> but I will tell you what's beautiful about it is um, I'm going on tour with our family and making the music, coming off stage and having this great time on stage. It's a boon to our relationship. It, it makes our relationship better and it makes us feel strong and, and, and capable and able to have pulled off this double banjo show. And, and that got it to a level where uh, we won a Grammy for the folk album and we've played a lot of pretty big shows. And it's just worked just fine with just the two of us. And that, that feels really good. This Red Rock State kicks off your 30th anniversary tour with the Flectones. I think this is the band's most extensive tour in years. And apparently, as you were finalizing the dates, there was an astronomical event that had been predicted on your 1991 album, Flight of the Cosmic Hippo. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that. (laughs) Tell us about this. Yeah, there was a hippo-shaped asteroid or comet that came close, uh, you know, the closest to... um, Earth that has ever come, I believe. Isn't that right? Yeah, this was in December of 2018. A hippo-shaped asteroid came at a distance of about 1.8 million miles from Earth. Which is close. (laughs) Yeah, that's close. It's all relative up there. Right. And this had somehow been predicted. Yeah, well, we have this uh, 
tune called Flight of the Cosmic Hippo, which became an album title against a lot of people's best judgment, but ended up being a really fun thing to do. And um, and so we've always had this sort of outer space element because nobody kind of knew what how to explain us when we first came out. And we just was so weird. We were just sort of connected to outer space. So they're from outer space or something. So the, the hippo was just a part of that. And um, we used to title our songs sometimes um, let the audience title our songs. After a song, we would say, if anybody's got a great idea for that song, please write it on a slip of paper and we'll collect them after the show. And one day we did this song, which was really goofy and slow. So, you know, the slowest we could possibly play for us, us virtuoso types. And someone wrote back and sent back a note saying, call it Flight of the Codeine Hippo. And we all thought that was very funny, but it, we weren't going to do that, not wanting to promote codeine hmm. but then then around album titling time I, I came back to me and i said what about flight of the cosmic hippo that could be pretty fun and then everybody thought that was great You'll be in Colorado yet again for next month's Telluride Bluegrass Festival, which you've played since 82. Uh, that's when you made your debut there with Newgrass Revival. What do you remember about that first performance at Telluride? I was scared silly. For one thing, when I joined Newgrass Revival, I was taking their old banjo player's place. So there was a part of me that felt very... like I really wanted to do well. And, and people weren't necessarily happy to see me there. You know, that first year, I was a brand new, fresh-faced kid, and mm, they had a lot of love for court. To feel that that is a hard thing. You know, I, I can look back on it now. I I was I wasn't f- afraid, but I was. I really wanted them to like me, and I all I could do was be myself. And over the course of years at Telluride, I found my place there, and um, got to the point where I was invited to do my own thing there. And and gradually, you know, I've been there every year now since '82, so I've done a lot of things there. When I get nervous, I think you can hear it in my voice, my lack of breath. How does nervousness manifest for you? I think if I'm too nervous, uh, I might start playing too hard and then lose my ability to be a flexible player. That's the worst thing that can happen or get so tight in my shoulders that I'm just not loose. And I, I was telling someone this not too long ago. I've never seen a great improviser who was tense. Hmm. It doesn't really work. It's the opposite of what you need to be playing freely because a lot of the music that I do has a lot of improv in it. And really good improv is sort of about being loose, relaxed, and letting your unconscious mind take over and direct, you know, you direct it. But a lot of stuff is sort of happening very spontaneously. And yeah, you can't be spontaneous when you're tense. So I think I've gotten pretty good at being really tense till I get on stage and then dropping the tense thing because uh, it it runs in my family getting uptight. So (laughs) I've tried to get over it. This year at Telluride, you'll play with the Flectones and the Telluride House Band, which has become a festival mainstay. It's kind of who's who of bluegrass with Sam Bush on mandolin, Jerry Douglas on dobro, Edgar Meyer on bass, Brian Sutton guitar, Stuart Duncan fiddle. I mean, talk about a super group. Yeah, those are the guys I always wanted to play with. If I was going to get to play bluegrass, and especially since Tony Rice hasn't been able to play, Brian's been an awesome guitar player to step in there. 
but Sam and Jerry were my they they were there before I got on the scene and then Stuart showed up and I kind of helped get him into that scene a little bit you know I, I think he would say that so that that's just those are the cats now also we you know Edgar Meyer being there is sort of kicks it into, oh, we could do anything with this band because Edgar's <laughs> a great classical virtuoso and a great jazz player, and he also knows everything about how to make bluegrass bass work, too. So that band is just a joy, and unfortunately, we only do it that one time a year, usually, so it's very special. Well, a man came by the other day, a hunting man to labor. Told him I hadn't seen the guy, so don't he ask my neighbor. So come on, boys, and get your gals and keep your feet up higher. Don't let no one steal your gal, just hold her a little tighter. So pick away on the old banjo, keep that guitar strumming. Put more water in the soup, there's better times to come in. Do you guys get a chance to rehearse as the Telluride house band, or is it just kind of natural at this point? We do rehearse. Now, we could just send a set list around to agree on the songs and, and say who's going to start it and wing it, and it would work out just fine. Because a lot of times we end up doing that on a few songs every year. Anyway, and we try to come up with some goofy ideas. Like one year, I had the idea of doing guitars and, or if, you know, other years we do a Stevie Wonder song. Things that take a little bit of, of rehearsal uh, that we really want to get right. And but we really enjoy that afternoon, usually at Edgar's house, because everybody lives here in Nashville. We we enjoy that afternoon of just getting together and playing and seeing what everybody wants to do. And usually there's two or three really hard things and then a bunch of easy stuff, but we just want to like get the vocal harmonies right and figure out how how we can make it fun and special. And try not to get too creative because we're only going to play the music once and then next year it's going to be a whole new set list. Stevie Wonder, wow. Finally, 30 years of Bela Fleck and the Flecktones. Are you surprised it's lasted this long? You know, I'm just really very grateful. Like, we, we got together at my house last week to play, and so we started listening to some of the old stuff. And we all were just kind of, we found this tune called Jekyll and Hyde and Ted and Alice, which we had forgotten about. And then we listened to it. We were all kind of in shock at how much work we had put into this thing and how cool it sounded to us. Of course, when you hear something you did yourself from years ago, it's activating old memories. And it was just so much fun just to have the four of us just like we were in 1988, like when we first met and we're playing, working on stuff, that sitting together and working on music together, not only did we love it, but we really sounded good doing it and nobody else could sound like that. And, uh, and here we all still are, and we love each other, and we don't play together all the time, but when we do, boy, it's special. It's a great musical relationship, a great personal relationship of our lives, one of the greatest ones. I also love that your canon is so large you can actually forget a tune. Um, thanks so much, Bela Fleck, for being with us. My pleasure. He performs Thursday at Red Rocks with a Friends and Family concert includes the Colorado Symphony and his wife Abigail Washburn. Fleck returns to Colorado next month for the Telluride Bluegrass Festival. Thanks to Michael Hughes who produced our interview. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. <laughs>